Welcome to episode 845 of I Am Talk, your weekly fix in all things Iron Man. Rightio, team, welcome along to episode 845 of I Am Talk with Coach John Newsom and Bevan James Isles. Today's show is going to be a little bit different because John is away on Epic Camp and we're kind of doing two things. We're going to, we're going to try to catch up and it just turned out it was kind of impossible to make it work, but he has done a few interviews. So today's going to be put together in two kind of ways. First of all, we're going to chuck a few Epic Camp interviews. I think he did four interviews up to this point in the camp. And then on my own podcast a couple weeks ago, I had an amazing interview interview with a lady called Inga Ganand and she has been doing some really important work around eating disorders and she also works in the fitness fitness industry as well so she's pretty high level in the fitness industry and it's an interview that I've got an amazing amount of feedback on and let's be honest in, in our world in the world of triathlon and endurance sport there are you know, there are a few people out there who struggle with this area of their life. And so I just thought, because it was a bit of a funny week and because we aren't doing the traditional show, it'd be really cool to chuck this interview on this episode. So the way the episode's going to work is basically, I'm going to chuck up the input Camp interviews first, then we'll get into the interview with Inga. That goes for about an hour. So it's going to be about an hour, 40, hour, 50 of content. So that's really cool. Now, just before we get into it, I do want to say a big thank you to some of the patrons of the show. Uh, these are the people who support IM Talk each week by giving some of their money our way. And these include Alex, Master Blaster Paul, Chris, Jetstream Doherty, and Guy Around the World Whitby. If you want to become a patron of the show, go to www.iamtalk.me and support the boys and what we do. So, again, what I'm going to do right now is I'm going to chuck up the epic account interviews back to back to back. Then, after that, I'll come and I'll do a quick intro about anger, and then we'll put that really amazing interview about eating disorders. And even if you're somebody who's not, you know, doesn't have this problem in your life, You'd be amazed how many people around you probably do, um, but also there's just some really cool insight and just some really good strategies in this important area. So again, listen up for that later on the show. Anyway, let's get straight into it. Here are the Epic Camp interviews. Okay, team, you will have just heard a little intro from Bevan, a little bit of a different show today because I'm away on Epic Camp, and as is tradition, um, I have four days in and uh, this is the first interview that I've done. Um, so yeah, we're doing a fantastic camp around the top of the South Island of New Zealand. We started in a place called Nelson. Day one we did, kicked off with a traditional aquathon, it was a handicap event where we swam about two kilometres in Nelson um, and the water was fairly fresh but not crazy freezing, apparently it was sort of 14 or 15 degrees centigrade. And then we ran 8K, and uh, then after that we did about a 120km loop on the bike, I think it was, around the upper mootery. Had a bit of roadworks, but it was all still good times. But, um, but then the next day was fantastic. We rode from a place called Nelson to Blenheim, but we also did a diversion over to Okiwi Bay. If you're ever in this neck of the woods, go, go, go check it out. It was awesome. Uh, what else did we do on that day? We must have done a swim somewhere. Uh, we, oh, we swam at a pool when we got there, and we also had a run. Day three was a Queen Charlotte uh, adventure. So Queen Charlotte is a sound at the top of the South Island. Did about uh, biked to a place called Anakiwa, 
which was a nice little ride. Then we did an elimination race in the sea. Uh, my estimation of the distances was a little bit off, but it was uh, it was all good. The top swimmers sort of dominated the dojo. We basically did laps of a, a circuit around a couple of boats. It was about ended up being about 300, 350 metres. It was supposed to be 250. Uh, and then we had an amazing run on the Queen Charlotte track. Uh, some guys did 17.5Ks, some did 12.5. Highly recommend going and checking that out if you're ever around there. Really stunning views and not particularly hard running, which was nice. And then, thankfully, we had a howling tailwind home, cruising at about sort of 50, 55k an hour from Picton towards a place called Blenheim. Picton's a place on top of the South Island where the ferry comes in from the North Island. And then we rolled into today, which is day four. Uh, we kicked off with a, an eight kilometer run that included a 5k guess your time. And the closest guess was. How many seconds out? I haven't actually got that with me, but it was pretty close. And then we went uh, three seconds, two or three seconds out. It was good. And then we went to the pool and we had a thousand meter guess your time. And there, somebody was two seconds out. David Locke from Australia was two seconds out from guessing his predicted time. So that was pretty awesome. Then we had the bike from hell. There was This ride was going to go one way or the other. Uh, and I'd known this all the way leading into the camp. It was from Blenheim to a place called St. Arnold. It was a pretty much a straight line ride, really straight roads, and uphill. So we had about a thousand meters of elevation. I think that's what I saw we got, but just real gradual. It's sort of one to three percent, and then it kicked up towards the end. And I was optimistic that the weather was going to be calm and would be okay. And I had a predicted time for our caterer to have the food ready. And that went out the window pretty bloody quickly because, um, just keep that mic still there Dave, um, <laughs> and it went out the window. We had horrendous headwinds for 100 kilometres and it, I think my average speed was 22 kilometres an hour. Uh, and it wasn't crappy power, that included a 20 kilometre team time trial. Uh, so And we weren't mucking around doing that, so 22 kilometres an hour and I think my power was you know wasn't amazing but it was pretty tough going so that's a little highlight so far um next we're going to have a few little interviews got dr feelgood dave dwan on the show welcome back dave been on a few times now thanks john good to be back uh and we're going to talk a bit about camp stuff but also a bit about kona because a few weeks ago we had a few guys on the show uh, talking about their kona experiences um some were loving it some were saying it's still really cool but Maybe the locals aren't quite so happy. Dave's been on the show a few times. He sort of splits his time between Kona and Christchurch. Uh, so he gets a, a good feel for what the locals are saying. So I thought it'd be nice to talk a bit about that. And he also raced Ironman over there on the... Th- you're racing Thursday. Thursday, yeah. Thursday with, uh, yeah, chasing down the Sheilas. <laughs> so to speak. So um, Dave, just tell us a bit about what your perception is and what the locals kind of feel about um, the double day Ironman. Good question. For me, I know I didn't hear anyone make any disparaging comments at all. The people I know, but most of those are in the Ironman world anyway. Mm. Some of the uh, I, some of the shops and local uh, people were saying that they had to shut down a couple of days, but it didn't bother them so much. Mm. In general terms, I didn't hear anything bad. The a lot of the people I know also volunteered both days, mm. uh, as did some of the athletes on the Saturday. But for me, it was 56,000 people on the big island. The tax take was incredible. Like even the local island tax would have brought in $7 million for infrastructure. So they love that. 
Uh, I think the the people with Airbnbs they loved it because their prices <laughs> went through the roof. Yeah. Uh, and and but one one thing I did observe that in some of the local restaurants did say it was quieter because a lot of people were living or staying out of Kona. They were up yeah, at Waikoloa, Waikoloa yeah. Waimea, that area, or even south of, of Kona because the expenses, it was just too expensive to live in the accommodation. Yeah. And some of the people I know, and I would call them locals, were really annoyed that people were trying to milk it and mm. trying to make money out of it when there's no real need to. Yeah. And because there's a business, enough business for everybody. Mm. That was good. Yeah, that was good, good, good feedback because, yeah, everyone jumps on the negative stuff and, and I, my feeling was... I thought there'd be quite a bit of negativity there because um, you hear about it each each time, but maybe maybe I'm misinformed. Well, the vol- I, like I said, I volunteered on the Saturday. I was lucky to catch the catching the bikes for the pros, but the, all the volunteers just loved it. They thought it was mm. great. And as we know, they, they help everyone get through the race. But a lot of the locals were right in behind it and mm. no, no, no complaints from them whatsoever. Um, Traffic, a bit of a nightmare, but it well, always is. Well, yes and no, it always is. But you know, this year they, they split the highway. They kept mm. the top right op- top side open and the bottom side on the, on the ocean side for the race. So that helped a lot. Mm. Uh, again, there was more people on the island, but it, I, I don't think, again, it didn't adversely affect anybody, no. Um, maybe we're going to do we'll, let, Hold on, we'll pretend to clap out. Put your hand up, Dave. That's a, a clap of hands. Dave made a good suggestion the other day. He said at the prize giving that they should have stood up and give a round of applause for athletes that raced on Thursday and then turned around and volunteered on Saturday, which you said there was quite a lot. Oh, doing that. all the Kiwis I know were on the on the out there volunteering, either catching athletes, catching bikes on the aid station, somewhere along the line. Yeah, they thought they thought it was great, a good way to give back. Oh no, it was awesome. Well, remember because the number because the numbers to have someone catch the bikes of the age group is it takes 1,200 volunteers. Mm. And they just didn't have the numbers. So as we know, they, they extended the aid stations. They needed two more on the run and two more on the bike, but they just didn't have the personnel mm. to, to, to be able to do that. So it was a tough call on a lot of the volunteers. They were, Ironman actually shipped in their people from Orlando, America, off the mainland uh, from all the different events to try and make it easier. There were 700 people came from YWAM across the road from um, where the race was, the university... So they, that people were there putting their hands up to try and volunteer. So everyone wants it to happen. They don't want it to leave the big island. Mm. Um, and that, yeah, I didn't know until you mentioned it the other day that yeah, there was no bike catchers, as you just said. Um, which yeah, just I, I don't think there's a really. It's a nice to have to people when you get off the bike, you just hand it your bike off and you bugger off and and you go and do your run. But really, is it that hard to go and wreck your bike? Um, no. So. Uh, it made no difference to us, really. Mm. We're just part of the part of the gig and just get on with it. Mm. Yeah. Um, so, tell us a bit about um, any any tips you have for people that may be going over to Hawaii in terms of prepping for um, Ironman. Given you kind of know the course pretty well now, and uh, any common things you see people doing wrong over there? I, I think just giving themselves time to acclimate or acclimatize—that's mm. the biggest one. They just think it's going to be easy. Again, the fuel they use on race day in heat is different from when they train at home typically. Mm. So that would be another thing. I think because, in my opinion, the race on Thursday was a lot cooler than it would normally be. There was very, mm. very little wind at all. Mm. So we probably didn't need as much cooling down. But for people coming in, the the other thing I see a lot of is that this on their feet all the time, rushing oh, yeah. around here. I know the expo, as an aside, was smaller this year mm-hmm. and the numbers were way down 
and some of the people who were on the stands said that the numbers were down again because people were living out of town. But I saw a lot of athletes on the go, up and down Ali'i Drive on their feet, mm. you know, walking, 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 and then still doing crazy stuff to try and, and then get to race day. They're absolutely knackered. Mm. So I think just taking the time, putting their feet up, getting acclimated, wind the windows down in the car, turn the AC off at home, get just get used to the heat. Mm. Um, and you had to turn around straight away and come back for Epic Camp. We're stoked to have you here, which Thank is great. Um, one of the things you brought back with you, which have been a lot of the athletes have been using this week, is uh, Generation You Can. Uh, it's a product I've used quite a bit in the past myself. Um, the way I typically use it is, in the past, uh, I usually have a bottle at the start of the bike ride uh, and also use it quite a bit in training. But this week's been the first time I've tried the gels, which seem to be working really well. One thing with the, which I find with the, the drink, you know, it's a really, and I've said this quite a few times before on the podcast, it's a unique flavour and it's just different. It's not like any other sports drink you're ever going to have and it's not designed to be that way. It's a different different taste, different um, sort of mixture. It's, you know, reasonably thick, but it really keeps things even. But the gels for me, I was I was expecting them to taste a bit like the drink, you know, a little bit chalky and... Um, but yeah, they're just they're kind of a bit, bit more like a regular gel. So. Yeah, they've hit the nail that one. I think going back to the texture is different. But what I use in my bottles when I'm either training or racing, I have a little silver stainless steel, stainless steel ball or a t- table tennis ball with holes in it to to shake it up to keep the mm-hmm. keep the mixture yep. going, and that really does help. I, in Hawaii, always use the insulated bodies bottles to keep it to keep it cool. Yeah, but the gels, yeah, they're a real hit, and the bars are going down really well mm. here on the camp as well. So they've mm. seemed to have. A good product range now that seems to be selling really, really well. There's no one size fits all for any sort of products, but if you if you find that you've been bonking or you've been if you have really big fluctuations in energy, um, go check it out because uh, you know, a few years ago when I was really going hard at it on the the low carb, high fat, and I was taking the UCAN as well, um, just finds that it keeps it an even energy balance through the day. And when I race, I still have a mixture of UCAN and, and other products, um, but it just helps, I don't know, it just seems to last a bit longer and just gives you a slightly different fuel source. So Yeah, I agree. It's a very sustainable thing. And, and someone said to me, do you have to be fat adapted? No, you no. Just, it's just normal. For, it's just mm. a normal uh, mix to use on your bike ride. I love it for training because it's just um, one, one scoop per bottle and get out there and do it. Mm. One so bottle an hour or whatever it might be. It's it's a really good product. Yeah, cool. So go check that out. Um, and we're a few days into the camp, uh, any differences you've noticed about this camp so far? It's a bit. It's a smaller camp, um, which has got its pros and cons. It means we get to everybody gets to know each other really, really well. Um, and it's our third sort of New Zealand camp. We've been, yeah, we've been buffeted by the wind today and yesterday. Um, we've had some cool swims. Um, yeah, any any interesting observations so far? I think the prime word there, Johnny, is uh, cool. I'm noticing it's a lot colder <laughs> here than Hawaii. And yeah. my daughter Libby said to me when we were swimming, the water temperature in Hawaii was 27 degrees, and I rock in here it's two degrees, and yeah. it's jolly cold. So <laughs> that that's one big difference. And I and I ref- I'm serious, seriously, I'm not going in the ocean. I'm not even bringing my wetsuit. It's just too cold <laughs> for me. But yeah. apart from that, I think the top of the South Island is absolutely stunning country and beautiful, mm. beautiful scenery. And everyone's just gelling well. And we've got no- our normal mix of um, of riders, you know, riding ability, and and, and as, as you always do, the it works out well. We start the slower guys and the medium guys and the fast mm. guys, and we always end up at the same place at the same time. So it works really well. Today, I think it epitomised what Epic Camp's about. You know, there is no easy way. It, mm. it was just a headwind grind all the way to Sonata, and everyone just helped each other out and got through. Yeah, and I don't want to overstate it, but when you get a headwind for a hundred kilometres, and you 
when you know, normally when you got a headwind, you're going, oh well, at least I'll have a tail when I come back the other way. And equally with this, the profile of today's ride, it was starting at not quite sea level, but pretty pretty much sea level, and finishing at whatever we're at, probably I don't know six or seven hundred meters elevation. So it's like. You normally say, oh, what goes up comes down. It's yeah, like, yeah. not today, it doesn't. Not today. And we don't get any tailwind. So uh, I wouldn't say it was a miserable day, but I labelled the valley uh, Misery Valley because we basically came up this valley um, and just in straight lines. Um, one of the things that uh, Nick Hankinson and I started doing is we started scoring the corners, uh, marks out of 10, because it was uh, so straight, and you're just like, oh, here comes a corner, it's a corner, yes, we've got a corner, uh, and that was bad, it, was, it just turned straight into um, another bit of wind, and there was no protection, so that was only a four or a five, um, but the other thing for me today, it was so windy that you couldn't hear, I was just get, I was getting really deaf just because you couldn't hear anything, it wasn't even worth talking, uh, and your ears are just burning. And I've, I was thinking of one of our previous camps in Canada way back in 2014, and a guy called John Ballard had these little um, ear protector, little fluffy things that he put over his ears. And I was thinking to myself, they would come in really handy right about now. So you may have to go and invest in a pair of those. I Don't think know what so. I think tomorrow's going to be a great run. Some of the, well, we, I'm only going to do half the lake. You're doing the full lake. We're doing full lake. So it's a lake called Lake Rotawiti. Uh, it's 24 kilometres around the lake, roughly. Um, but it's going to be really slow going. There's lots of it's proper trail running. Got to do a big ford crossing somewhere. And we're going to get wet, apparently, up to our sort of thighs. So that's going to be interesting. Uh, and it's going to be single-digit temperatures, um, which is not warm for you Americans. Single digits in centigrade and possibly a little bit of rain, but it's going to be a good day. Well, like we say, it's a, it's an epic camp, not easy camp. Not tiddlywinks, not tiddlywinks. So Dave, we'll probably catch up, might catch up with you later on in yep. the camp. Thanks for your time. <laughs> Thanks, Johnny. And uh, guys, as we said before, go check out You Can, and yeah, we'll get on to somebody else now. Thanks, Rock Dave. On. Thanks, John. Rightio. First, uh, we had Dave on just there, but um, first athlete up, Logan Cowdell. Yep, got that's it right. It. Uh, there we go. You know, guys know what Bevan and I look with names. We're bloody hopeless. So, Logan, tell us a little bit about yourself. Um, sort of, yeah, where you're from, a little bit of background, um, your sort of gig, and yeah, tell us a bit about yourself. Uh, from Wellington, uh, I've got a super high overachieving wife. So, I've got uh, three kids and a neurotic beagle to look after at home. So, I do all the, the home stuff, and she does the work stuff. And I th- managed to escape for 10 days to go swim bike running. Have you ever done anything like this before? Uh, I did an Eiffel coaching camp in Noosa like about eight years ago. Yeah. And that was cool with Mitch Kibbe yeah. and Ryan. That was really good fun. And this is the first chance I've kind of had to get back into it as the kids get older. Yeah. Okay. Uh, a little bit about your, your sporting background and, and triathlon and stuff. Uh, done 12 Ironmans. I've done a few, but oh. um, just got stuck in that kind of uh, 10.50 to 12 hour Mm. bracket and have never kind of done enough biking so thought I'd scare myself and do a shed load of biking and I'm scared myself. (laughs) Nice. Part of the Cupcake Cartel? Uh, Yep, yep. It's uh, part of Callum's Annalise's mob and that's really cool. It's good fun. There's lots of banter on the socials. Yeah. Really enjoy it. Cool. Uh, And what made you think about coming on this camp? Uh, I got a deferred Ironman plan like most people have got a few Ironman entries floating around scope <laughs> one for December and then realized I had 50 odd days and thought I'd better do some training yeah so 
uh, signed up and um, getting smashed. Yes, good times so. though. Um, okay, so what what were your expectations sort of coming into this in terms of you probably listened to interviews and things like that in the past and got a bit of a sense of what, what, what it's going to be like? Um, what, what were you thinking were going to be the hard moments? Granted, we're only four days in out of nine so far. So what, what were your sort of expectations coming in? Uh, expectations was that I was going to get really fit and walk away with a six pack. <laughs> you know, <laughs> everyone puts on weight on effort camp, so fail. Yep, next one. Uh, so far, feeling much fitter and getting lots of mental toughness training, you know, riding 90Ks into a, a headwind, give getting yourself, Give yourself the other 10. It was 100, not 90. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, okay. Uh, highlights so far? Uh, first day was a bit of a, a highlight, just jumping in. Doing a 2K point-to-point swim, which is always fun because you never really mm. kind of get to do those. And then smashing out a quite fast run. I was like, welcome to first day of camp. Yeah. As I thought I swam pretty well and just got schooled by Andrew and then thought <laughs> I was running well and just got smashed by everyone else as well. <laughs> nice. Um, okay. And low lights. Is, yeah. Low lights so far. Uh, no low lights so far. Um, Good. Yeah, quite happy. Haven't had to be taped like everyone else. <laughs> yeah, so I'm sitting here uh, as part of the taping squad. Well, I've been taped since day one. Calf, um, my wrist isn't currently taped, but uh, the tape's working on the treatment. We've got Andrew Abacan here, who's our sort of masseuse and physio, and he is uh, doing quite a bit of triage, which he's doing a great job of, because those are tapes seem still to be still running, which is, which is cool. Um, anything surprised you so far, you know, in terms of, Wowzers, that was not quite what I was expecting or, yeah, anything. Uh, kind of funny because you look at the distances and you think that's ridiculous but you kind of get up and you just do them and then you get up mm. the next day and do them again and I've got a few more days to keep doing them. Exactly. Okay, uh, I'm in New Zealand in December. Any particular expectations uh, around that? And your kids said, said they want you to get to Kona. Uh, yeah, they want me to get to Kona because they think it'd be really cool to go hang out there. So um, pressure's on from the kids. Um, but I'll have to go pretty fast or get a legacy slot. So, um, but I'd be happy if I go around 10 I reckon yeah. that'd be a really good improvement. And then I've got March next year, so then I'll maybe improve again and get under 10, hopefully. But if you've done, have, you, have all yours been Ironman races or have they been a bit of a mixture? So uh, no, they've all legacy? been... They've been all Ironman races. So. Okay, so you can get in that legacy pool. Yep. Any idea? I don't know the answer to this. You might or may or may not. How long is the, is the wait these days on legacy? Uh, I think it's pretty much up in the air because a lot of people kind of... Deferred. Deferred and it's kind of all over the show. Yeah, okay. Um, how do you sort of make it work with kids and stuff? So your kids are... Kids are at school, um, and whilst yeah you're at home, um, I know there's a shitload going on. How do you how do you sort of make it work on the the home front in terms of getting the training in? Uh, I, I do appreciate you said you you're building back into it now, but how, how do you, how do you sort of make it happen? So I don't get any slots before school starts. So my wife swims; she's a pretty sharp swimmer. So she'll swim first thing in the morning. So I get the kids ready for school, do the school stuff. And then I get to train between nine and three, and then the kids' stuff starts after that. So there's, mm. there's swimming, there's just everything under the sun. And I believe you're the slowest swimmer in the family. Ah, <laughs> uh, yeah, they're all much better swimmers because they got to go to swim squad. So, yeah, yeah, which is great though. So they're going to be magic little swimmers. Excellent. Okay, uh, what else did I have from you? Um, yeah, Logan got a prize today for wingman of wingman of the day. Um, he was helping Rebecca out all the way through the bike ride, um, which was awesome of you. Uh, we, when we were riding today, 
we had we, we did a, about an 8k little warm up to get sort of out of the town we're staying at then we did a 20 kilometer team time trial uh, and then we had another 45 k's to the next aid station which was supposed to be this this road we're doing there's zero towns so we left a place called Blenheim there is nothing between there and where we arrived and the place we arrived at there's a petrol station and a beautiful lake and some holiday homes and that's about it and I knew there was nowhere in between and I set this aid station at the 75 kilometre mark it was basically a car park which I think had like a little grass area for a campground and there may have been a toilet there if we were lucky but it would have been a manky sort of long drop and then a couple of k's before the this place we were supposed to be at, all of a sudden, like a bloody oasis, there was this coffee cart in the middle of nowhere. And a very enthusiastic lady, that Andrew is predicting she might have been Colombian, uh, and she was just cranking out the coffees. Were you guys pretty uh, pretty happy to see that? Oh, we thought it was magic. I was talking to Steve, and because on the schedule it said it was 67. 75. 75 and we were battling into the wind then all of a sudden you know you go five k's to go come around the corner oh there's a coffee cart yeah so we knocked five k's off so knocked off early and got into the coffee it was fantastic did you experience the toilet with a view yes i did not tell us about the toilet with a view so basically it had three sides and you just looked out into the vast lovely new zealand countryside so it like didn't have a wall on the, the third only no. had three walls so you no. were open air Open air had a, a few lovely bits of planting as you led into it, so it was really secu- secluded, and you just looked out at the countryside. Everyone was raving about it, but it was about, <laughs> it was about a, a whole thirty meter walk, and I was like, "It's thirty meters. I don't need to be doing. I don't need to go to the toilet." Uh, so I'd let it go. But one day I'll have to come back. Anyway, if you want to check it out, it's between Sananid and um, Blenheim. So there you go. Awesome, Logan. Um, it was good to have you here. And anything particular, what's your approach um, going forward? So day four, we've had four pretty tough days. What's your approach um, for the next five days? Uh, hang in there and maybe not go too much into the threshold. Mm. Fingers crossed. And anything that you know that's coming up that you're particularly looking forward to? Uh, not the last day because I heard stories about a <laughs> triathlon on the last day that went up the remarkable ski field. And so everyone was kind of looking at the maps to see what was around where we finish up on the last day to see what unfun is in store for us. Oh, yeah. No, it's going to be good times. So I'll keep that close to my chest. Awesome. Um, we might catch up with you later in the camp and well done so far. Cool. Thanks, John. Ah, dear. I've done a Bevan, people. Uh, so it's only interview number three, and I did this just marvellous introduction about today's guest, Hayden Beetle, this evening's guest, and hadn't hit the record button. So we're back now. Welcome along, Hayden. Thanks, John. This is, again. Uh, again, trust me, when Bevan and I do it, it's just you're replaying stuff and the, the gags don't get any funnier. Um, but I said to Hayden last year after the camp, he was keen to come again this year, and he said, uh, said oh, what about Shirley? She'd probably be a pretty good support crew. And he said, yep, she's coming along. And he managed to twist her arm, and she's doing a great job. 
fantastic work, Shirley. She's sitting on the other side of the Good room. Good work. <laughs> I have to say that. I, I have to. I have to say that out loud. <laughs> um, so Hayden, what uh, what was what were you thinking when you wanted to? Well, no. Firstly, day one last year, Hayden wanted to go home. <laughs> he rang Shirley and he's like, "This isn't for me." Uh, he wanted to go home, and now it's day four of second year, and you're back. So, what was the what was the motivation to come back? Motivation was not to go home on day one like last year. Last mm. year's first day was like today mm. into the wind all day wasn't pleasant got back and i was not in tears but it was close to it yeah. this year day one was much better we started with an aquathon and that was that was a lot better <laughs> a lot better uh and i hayden is a an iron virgin at this stage uh so i'd imagine that's part of the decision as well with iron man coming up and God, it must be about six weeks after the end of the camp, I suppose. So. Yeah, it's a perfect storm because mm. we've got Epic Camp now, Oxman mm-hmm. in a month's time, and then Ironman, 10th mm. of December. And then you can kick back and uh, enjoy the rest of December. Enjoy December and then maybe, maybe Wanaka. <laughs> <laughs> he says, uh, yeah, <laughs> yeah. We'll, we'll see about that. Uh, okay, so in terms of, you said, you said, Day one last year was a real challenge, and I was in the van last year, and it was a challenge watching you guys on that day because a you had headwind, but you also had some very nasty hills. Uh, today, as you said, was was pretty similar. How did you how did you kind of approach today? I guess maybe from a mental point of view and and also a physical point of view to try to make it a slightly more enjoyable experience, or was it equally miserable? Well, it was miserable, but it, was, it wasn't too bad because we had a nice group going mm-hmm. and we're just taking turns on the front, rolling through. Um, <clears throat> and it, it actually went by quite, not quickly, but it was just, it's just a nice, easy group to go. In. And I don't think we were trying to push it. Two people in the front, which um, came past at one point when I fixed my bike, they went, oh, you can jump on. We're only going to do 250. I said, no. <laughs> He's talking 250 watts. <laughs> yeah. I'm not going to sit on sit on you guys for 250, <laughs> not for the next 70 kilometers. So yeah. found another group, and that was a lot more enjoyable. Today we had the team time trial, uh, and you had a team of four. Uh, all the other teams were teams of three. Uh, you also did a team trial trial last year. Um, I can't remember what happened there, whether you were part of the the tire explosion group or not. Um, but tell us a bit about how you guys approached a team time trial. Given you know we're all pretty smoked, it's only three days in, but everyone's pretty tired, and you've got a bit of variability in, in the groups. How did you guys approach it? Well, we had two roadies and two uh, TT bikes. The first thought was to put the two TTs in front, and then the two roadies try and rotate. That didn't work. Stay for long. <laughs> Then we went and we said, okay, well, we'll do uh, one kilometer each on the front. That lasted about two turns for all of us. <laughs> and that blew up to 500 meters each. And then we started rotating by 500 meters each. And it ended up being roadie, TT bike, roadie, TT bike. And that seemed to, to work towards the end. And did you guys keep, uh, just turn that, turn that a little oh. bit to your mouth, did you guys keep a pretty even effort? Because um, we went barreling past you and uh and you guys just caught the group in front of you um it looked like almost on the line did you guys keep a pretty even effort or did you have to lay the hammer down to catch the second group no we, we were pretty constant throughout except maybe the last 500 when we saw the van and we saw the other team <laughs> and that's when shane picked up yeah. the gas and we 
we motored on just to get past them. Yeah. I think we got them within 200 meters or something of the finish line. So it was a Ma- close. masterful handicap, I must say, <laughs> except for my team, which was. We had a bit of a soft handicap, to be fair, but it's all statistically based. It's like Torsten stuff from tryrating.com. I look at the stats and I just plug it in and it is what it is and that's what the stats told me I need to do. We might have to double check that <laughs> spreadsheet <laughs> of yours. Um, okay, what else was I going to ask you about? You had uh, Early in the camp you had some uh, undercarriage issues. Tell us about, about solving those. Well, there's a mechanic, well not a mechanic, on on um on the crew, not on the crew, sorry, as part one of the athletes, Shane. I said to him, Shane, could you just check my seat? It seems to be a little bit further down. And it was magic. Well, there's undercarriage problems have pretty much gone away. He lifted the seat because it was pointing down slightly. He just made it straight, Flatten. I'd say. Yeah. And wow, it's amazing difference. There you go, Check people. your seat position. Yeah, or play around with it as well. It's just sometimes those little tweaks whether up down Shane I think he was saying also quite often for camps and stuff he gets people to lower their seat just fractionally um, he says that can sometimes make a distance a difference when you when you're going nice and extreme um, but, but yeah. it made the world of difference I mean I don't have to complain to Shirley she doesn't have to get ice <laughs> <laughs> too much <laughs> too much more than I needed to know oh, I could go to a story on that one but I won't it's something that happened on France France camp but um, we won't go there on this occasion but you've been smoking in all the uh, the events so far uh, you won the uh, you won the aquathon we had Andrew who was off the front he's part of the support crew so on day one it kind of counted but after that it doesn't uh, you won what did you win today? Uh, well the the swim predict your time closest percentage not yeah. time but percentage yeah um, I think swimming is the one that's helped me through all of them if there wasn't mm. swimming I'd it wouldn't be that You've improved your swimming because you were not a swimmer whatsoever um, beforehand. You don't come from a swimming background, but you're down to what about a five fifteen or something for yep. four hundred meters. Yep. Uh, so what's what's made the difference for you with your swimming? I think a lot more swimming and consistent swimming. Mm. You know, three times a week, just get in the pool, and don't be afraid to be swum over by little kids because yeah. the lane that I swim in is the slowest lane, and there's little oh, girls that are yeah, he's uh, holding twelve or thirteen, and they. They're brutal in the water. They hit you, they swim over you. Just, that's fine. Just go with the flow. That's great. I um, I knew you swam with them. I didn't know the girls beat you up, the 12-year-old girls beat you up, but good, so, good to know. It's um, just lots of swimming. But you've been doing squads for, for quite a few years, and it's, yep. and it's a swim squad rather than a tri-squad, isn't it? Yep. I mean, do, do a bit of both, but it's primarily a swim squad. Yep. The, the one thing that the coach does say is if they're doing – Breaststroke or butterfly, they, he goes, Hayden, you can do freestyle or just do yeah. pull. Yeah. So he does change it up slightly for me. Cool. Uh, any particular highlights of the camp so far for you? I think it's just been a good camp so far. The, I mean, today support was crew, The support crew is amazing. The, the <laughs> best ever. <laughs> Smoothies have been awesome. Yeah. Um, it's just been a really, really good camp so far. I think last year, three days in, I uh, twisted my ankle. Yeah. So that was a little bit off, but this time it's been good. I think the mm. scenery has been nice. And I know some of these roads last year was down south and I had no idea where I was going. I mean, most of the time I have no idea where I'm going, but mm. this was a, it's been good so far. Mm. Excellent. Uh and what are your what are your worries? Uh, Ironman's coming up. Um, what, what's your concern being a, a rookie? You know, you've done lots of racing, lots of halves. Um, you've done it's your second epic camp, so now you know 
how to go long. Um, but what are your what are your big concerns going into an Ironman? Run. Yeah. Run. <laughs> the run is going to be, I think, the hardest. So swimming, I don't think, will be. I'm not going to say a problem, but I think the swim will be the swim. Mm. The bike will be the bike. But I just don't know what to expect on the run. Mm. I think the first little bit will be okay, and then. It's one of those things. People can tell you everything they want to want to, but until you've actually done your first Ironman, it's hard to explain what that last ten k is like. Sometimes it goes great, sometimes not so great. But you'll be you'll smoke it. You're gonna do awesome. Um, very good. Anything in particular you're looking forward to for the rest of the camp? The last day. The last day. Do you know what's happening on the last day? No. Everyone seems to no, be telling me they know what's going on, but nobody does. No, I think you've got something. Last year we did the the triathlon up um, Ma- Remarkable uh, Ski Field. Yep. So there's going to be something like that. And if it's in Mochawaka, that's mm. where we're staying the last night, you live in Kateri, so there's <laughs> going to be some – or not live, you holiday, you've got a holiday home. Yeah. So there's going to be something around there. I and I've got an idea of, of where it may go. So. Yeah. Uh, I did notice we biked past a ski field today, Rainbow Ski Field, which is just a couple of kilometres, and I didn't factor that, and we could have gone up there. It would have been awesome. Uh, okay, awesome. Thanks for your time, Hayden, and all the best for the rest of the camp, and, of course, for Ironman as well. Thanks, John. Thank you very much. Next up, we have someone who's doing her first full Epic Camp. She's done the Epic Camp Mini, uh, which was in this sort of neck of the woods last year or the year before. might have been the year before. I can't remember. Rebecca Spears, welcome back. I'm not sure if I had you on last time or not, but welcome along to the show. Hi. Um, okay, tell us a little bit about yourself, because often when we talk to athletes, you know, they're Ironman junkies, um, or do lots of halves and stuff, but you do a whole variety of things. You do a bit of kayaking and stuff, I think, in the open water. You do all sorts of uh, exterior tries, um, do a bit of everything. So tell us a bit about your, your sort of gig and your, your approach to the sport. Yeah, so mainly I've done sprint tries, but um, the last couple of years I've done a bit bit of uh, surf life-saving type sports and mm-hmm. got a lot more into the kind of mountain bike bike packing kind of stuff as well, So and gravel riding, so yeah, I just kind of mix it up a lot. <laughs> what is your advice for people that are bikepacking? Because I've, I think either last couple of weeks I've probably shared my experiences with my, my maiden bikepacking trip and we certainly had a few challenges um, when we did that. Uh, what what's some tips you've got for people if they if they want to sort of try to dabble into that world? Yeah, I'd say um, start in summer and then um, just go minimal. Um, I like not really taking a tent and just going minimal mm. gear and just staying in Airbnbs or motels or whatever. Mm. Um, but yeah, just pick a part of the country you want to explore and then um, yeah, it just makes it fun if you're trying to going to a new place. Do you usually go by yourself or do you go with others? Um, yeah, do you go with other people? So there's, we've got a whole gang of. Um, kind of gravel riders in Tauranga where I live um, mm-hmm. so there's a few people from there that go on trips and yeah how do you oh, this is that's pretty not a stupid question what, what 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 how do you decide between a gravel bike and a mountain bike um, what's your sort of threshold between deciding between the two yeah good question um so if, if there's a mix of road and gravel, then I'd go gravel bike. But if mm-hmm. it's going to be more mountain bike or there's parts of it that are just too rough for a gravel bike to handle, um, go mountain. But um, So, for example, I did the Forgotten World Highway uh, over Christmas last year, and that's got about half and half, so that was a good gravel bike kind of option. Mm. Um, this summer I'm doing a trip. I'm joining some people doing the Sounds to Sound on the South Island. Mm-hmm. So I'm joining in about halfway and doing that, but I'll take a mountain bike for that because there'll be more kind of more some a little bit of grade three stuff in there and yeah 
Mm. Nice. Okay. Um, so you did the Epic Camp Mini uh, whenever it was, last year or the year before, um, and that was, I think, maybe four pretty pretty solid days. What was the motivation to sign up for the Big Kahuna? Yeah, so the Mini was like an experiment last year to see if I could do it. <laughs> yeah. Um, and I survived that. So then when this one came up, like this is one of my favourite parts of the country to kind of ride around. So, um, yeah, got some friends doing it too. So I figured, yeah, let's let's – try the the full Monty yeah um so yeah just wanted to it's kind of just a challenge really just to see if see if I can do it because it's not something I've done that much riding in 10 days before so yeah yeah so what um what what what, are you, what were your goals coming in is just to complete it or did you have anything particularly you wanted to try to, to achieve um yeah definitely completion um and also to complete it and not feel kind of wrecked, like mm. to enjoy the experience. So I did try to do lots of gravel, hilly riding over winter and lots of long rides, which I think I think I definitely feel more bike fit this year than I did coming into the mini. So that's mm-hmm. that's been good. And then I think I'm looking forward to climbing Takaka Hill again. Mm. Yeah, I enjoyed that last year. <laughs> yeah, we might be a little, going to be a little <laughs> more tired going into it this time around. Yeah. So Takaka Hill is uh, sort of the probably the longest climb in New Zealand I reckon um it's about 16 k's long if you go all the way to the top uh not crazy steep but certainly there's not many longer than that but the challenge we've got is we're doing a long run the day before and then our approach to get there uh, we've probably got to ride about 80 or 90 k's or so to get there so it's going to be a uh, interesting day I rode up there a few weeks ago and put on a pretty reasonable effort, managed to hold 285 watts all the way up. Uh, I ain't going to be anywhere near that this time <laughs> around, um, but that's going to be interesting. Uh, okay, um, so far, you know, how have you found it? Yeah, really good. Like, um, just the whole atmosphere of everyone here has just been awesome because everyone's just on the same, yeah, in, in the same space mentally and you're just mm. all encouraging each other and, yeah, just really good crew people. How have you sort of battled through the the tough moments? You know, there's been quite a bit of wind and stuff. What 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 goes through your mind when you're slogging away into that wind today? Yeah, I think we definitely earned our epic camp stripes today. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think I was just trying to chunk it up into kind of like sprint distance try chunks. So yeah. it's kind of like we did the first time trial over 20k. I'm like, right, that's 20k done, and then it's like, right, well, there's only four four lots of 20k to go, kind of thing. So I think I kind of chunked it up that way and. Um, yeah, it was good having Logan as wingman to help mm-hmm. me through. That was really good. Um, yeah, I think just not not thinking about how far it is, just just breaking it down into pieces, really, yeah. Mm. <laughs> nice work. Uh, and do you care about the points competition or anything like that? Is that uh, or is, is – I'm not sure I'm in contention for the points <laughs> competition, but I was quite proud of my six-length – uh, butterfly the other day <laughs> you've been one of has anybody else done the butterfly so we have the butterfly challenge and it used to be you had to do 200 meters butterfly but that was just a ridiculous task for some people who are slightly weaker swimmers so I kind of graded it based on your swimming ability sort of your 400 meter time so I think it goes down to 100 meters or something like that for, for those that are a little bit weaker swimmers up to 200 if you're a reasonable swimmer but you can get bonus points for every 25 or every 50 above that that you do um how far did you how about my far did butterfly did you do um six lengths so would that be 150 150 nice yeah and arms were were clearing the water surface all the way through i think they were (laughs) (laughs) nice no nobody last every other camp everyone is 
gangbusters is straight on it. Um, but I don't know if anybody else has done the Butterfly Challenge. So well done on that. Uh, there's a little bit of bands only today. I had a thousand bands only this morning. Um, but most of our swimming is going to be open water and it's pretty fresh. Well, it's 14, 15 so far. But uh, tomorrow is the moment of truth. We have to try to swim in Lake Rotawiti. And <laughs> I'm picking if it's 11 degrees, we'll be, that'll be about as good as it gets. <laughs> 11 is about my threshold. If it's below that, it's not happening. Uh, so yeah, anything in particular? Oh, you said you're looking forward to the Taka Hill. Um, anything else about the camp you've, uh, that's either surprised you so far or, um, or you've gone, oh, that wasn't so good? I think actually um, yesterday was awesome when we um, we rode to Anakiwa and then we had the swim competition there mm. and just like it was just so beautiful, the water was warmer than I was expecting it to be and then we had a really awesome trail run um, yeah, from Mistletoe Bay back down to Anakiwa so yeah it was just it was just a cake day, it was just brilliant. And lunch, <laughs> lunch yeah. was outstanding when we got back, didn't know what was coming and it was awesome so Wicked, wicked. Okay, we might catch up with you later on in the camp. Um, but so far, so good. So keep up the good work. Thanks very much. So if you've enjoyed those epic camp interviews, I do recommend, if you've ever listened to us talk about the, the epic camps, if you ever get a chance, it's one of the best investments you can do in triathlon. Obviously, doing an Ironman or doing an Iron Distance race or doing big events is a really cool thing to do. But um, I know in my time in triathlon, you know, some of my best memories, some of the best experiences I had was when I was doing the epic camps there. John puts on a great camp. Um, but it's just the, the, the place. What's really cool about epic camps is, first of all, you just go to a place you never thought you could go to. You just train in ways you never thought possible. And the nature of the camp is you can just be really selfish about your training in regards to you don't really have to think about life. You know, your washing's done for you. You know, organization's done for you. You kind of get up in the morning, you eat your food, you train, you know, and that's pretty much the, the kind of the experience of the camp. Um, but secondly, it's that kind of camaraderie and a shared experience you have with a group of people in a really powerful way. So A, you get to that next level of, of your athletic ability in a really motivating environment and then you have this really awesome kind of life experience with people and, and I've got to be honest I, I haven't really seen many of the Epic Camp people that I did Epic Camp with over the years but a couple of years ago when we went back to Hawaii there was a crew of us who were on those Epic Camps and I hadn't seen them in years and you just there's this kind of togetherness thing that's together so um, if you want to check out John's camp uh, he's doing you know, this two or three a year you can go to epiccamp.com Okay as I was saying earlier I did an interview with a lady by the name of Inga Ganancy. she is a psychologist she is also a world-leading fitness professional um, and she's been doing some really interesting research and kind of study on a, a different way to approach eating disorders and it's a really interesting discussion. I'll talk a little bit about her fitness career first and then we go into some of the stuff she's been doing with eating disorders. It's a really great interview so I hope you enjoy it. Here it is right now. Right, team, I'm very excited to have a lovely lady by the name of Inga Gannett. Now, we had, I had to ask her how to say that before we actually started speaking today, but um, <laughs> so welcome along to the show. Thank you very much. So I suppose before we kind of, you know, I'm, I was kind of motivated to get you on the show because I was in Melbourne about a month ago and we, you were telling me about kind of the work you're doing with your study and your career and I found it really fascinating. So I thought it'd be quite cool to have a chat about that on the show. But let's start, take a step back and maybe just tell us a little bit about yourself and you've worked in fitness for a long time. So maybe just give us an, an introduction to Inga. Sure. Um, well, Hopefully this will be helpful for maybe some of your younger viewers who are wondering what to do with their life because my experience of life has certainly been one that has shifted and changed um, throughout my kind of 
career, I guess you can call it that. And something that I always reflect on is the fact that even though it has been quite a diverse sort of range of roles and um, opportunities that have come my way, I've taken something from everything. So I started off, I left school after fifth form to pursue a career in classical ballet because that was just my absolute love and passion. And so I successfully auditioned for the New Zealand School of Dance and, um, and I attended that school for a couple of years, but then shifted over to a different institution in Melbourne called the Victorian College of the Arts that was um, a little bit more suited to me as a person um, and also my aspirations, which following quite a significant injury had had shifted a little more towards contemporary dance. Um, and from there, I, I, I did a bit of project work, which is the nature of contemporary dance, unfortunately, a lot of the time. Um, and I'm so old that it was it was pre social media. Yeah. <laughs> and so information was probably a little bit less easy to get. Even the internet wasn't very good then. Mm. Um, and I, I, I do often think, geez, I wish I had had all of that information at my fingertips because I probably would have done a little bit more with those skills at that time. But then um, I floated around a few different roles and one of those roles was actually in, I moved back to New Zealand for a couple of years. Sorry, that's my dog sneezing. And um, I ended up in working in Les Mills in Wellington in sales and really enjoyed it. So I worked there for a few years and then ended up back in Melbourne. Um, and it was at that point that I really started to fall in love with fitness. So I'd enjoyed doing the classes before that. But then when I moved back to Melbourne, it was when I, I don't know, it was like there was like a, a switch that was flicked. And it was almost like I was able to use a lot of the skills that I'd developed through dance in just a really different way that probably had a bit less pressure and was a good challenge It was because because we know that it's a challenge and it doesn't matter how long we've been doing it, we're always learning. Um, and so that's how I kind of got into fitness, which I've been in since 2008 as, a, as an instructor, that is. And then, um, and then sort of, I guess, my third career, which is in psychology, happened um, maybe around, I think I studied, started studying it around about 10 years ago. It's quite a long quite a long journey um, because I'd always been really curious and I I thought it would be something that I would be good at and that I'd enjoy. Mm -hmm. And again, sort of similar to fitness, that it would have longevity and in, in that no human is the same. So you're never going to know everything and you're always going to be learning and that's something that I value a lot. And yeah, so that's when I started studying it and, and I'm just a few months away from f finishing a qualification that's a clinical PhD. So you do your clinical masters alongside a full PhD and that's what I'm doing at the moment. I've got a couple of questions about your history. So leaving school at 15 to, to, to chase the dance dream, um, were your yeah. parents supportive of that? Because, uh, you know, it's, it's a, you know, like, 
it is kind of a one and it's you know it's a very small percentage game isn't it not many people actually get the opportunity to make a career out of dance um and was that a tough decision or were you just kind of like all on board oh i just did not doubt it for a second okay okay and i I mean, I, I would say I didn't give them any choice, but of course, when you're that age, of, I mean, you kind of can't do anything without the yeah. support of your parents yeah. because they, for a start, are supporting you emotionally, physically, and financially. So mm. I couldn't have done it without them. And I was really lucky that I come from a family where um, hard work is really valued and um, there's a the uh, the belief that's instilled in us around if you have something that you want to try then you should mm-hmm. and so i was really really fortunate um how much, how much maturity did you have to gain because you know i met you know 15 you're still you're pretty young you know let's be honest and oh, it, i know you know and then going into a world where you are i imagine you with adults pretty much from day one what was it like and also a competitive oh. really high pressure world as well yeah, there's a lot of layers to that. Obviously, I've unpacked a lot of them as as I've trained as a psychologist as well. <laughs> I've been able to reflect on that. And the first thing I probably would say is that I look back on my younger self um, with just, I just think, oh my gosh, like you're you're adorable. I can't believe you thought that that you could just do whatever you wanted. <laughs> <laughs> Whereas now I I carefully consider every single choice and decision that I make. Whereas back then I was like, I'm gonna I'm gonna do this now. <laughs> so um yeah, I think it it's a big deal and, and I've I've kind of gone off on a tangent. Uh what was can you can you please well, ask just, that you know, question like, again? How did it make you grow up? Because again, you, you go mm. from a being a a kid basically into a high pressure mm. i imagine very competitive and i imagine there's aspects of it that aren't healthy um you know what was that kind of growth experience like for you and it, how did you manage it yeah um so it probably started before that because funnily enough a, a few years prior my um stepdad who's quite into sports had engaged with a sports psychologist oh, wow. because my parents thought geez this is a lot for like a 13 year old to be dealing with yeah. um having big goals and aspirations but also having to to put up with and and try and deal gracefully with losing Mm. and losing when things really mean a lot to you, Mm. Um, dealing with setbacks and knockbacks and injuries and disappointments because those are things that that are part of um, the world of of certainly ballet and and dance um, to to a, a large degree as well. So I think that it probably I was really mature in a lot of ways and then probably quite immature in a lot of ways too, because from a, from such young age, I remember deciding when I was nine, I remember the exact moment that I decided that this was going to be exactly what I was going to do for the rest of my life. I was in a, at an audition in Christchurch, actually. We were living in Christchurch and I went, attended this audition. And again, it was maybe a little similar to that, that switch going off um, in group fitness. It was like, all of a sudden 
I kind of got it and and I stood in the posture of a ballet dancer and I mm. held my head like a ballet dancer and I could understand the expression and and that type of thing it was it was this quite strange experience and um yeah so I had decided really young but what that also meant is that I didn't go out drinking and I didn't party and so and I didn't and I was really driven at school and I I did really well at school even though I left so early mm. I did do well and so I didn't and and there's probably good and bad things to, to both right I, d I didn't have maybe make some of the normal mistakes that a teenager would would usually make <laughs> and I because I think that some of those mistakes are actually really valuable mm. if you can do it in, a, in an environment where you're supported and you know and it's not too significant and you're able to kind of pull yourself back from it. Mm -hmm. So in some ways, yeah. while, while you're kind of streaming here, there are some kind of missed opportunities and where you could have learned life other than other ways. Yeah. And I, I've developed that since. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, you're, yeah. You're, now, you're now a party Maybe animal. Just in a... <laughs> oh, yeah. absolutely. Yeah, as I go to bed at night. Well, here's another question for you. You know, so so then you kind of go on and, and obviously it didn't last. And and um, and um A, it's a tough game and B, it's a body game. So there's always limits around those things. Um, And then you decide you're going to study, what, probably, you know, late 20s, um, something around there. And um, what was it like to go – to study was that a scary moment like obviously you had been a successful up to the age of 15 at school but what was that like for you ah hmm. oh, that's a great question what happened was um and I know that it's a little bit different in New Zealand but in Australia if you already have any degree there's often a pathway into another profession that you can do by um enrolling in something called a grad dip which is basically all of the undergraduate courses that you would generally do for example in psychology you can do it as a grad dip so you don't have to do the whole yep. broad degree again so I enrolled in one of those and honestly at the start I was not very good not really. I didn't I like I was I was average at best yeah. I would have been average at best in terms of my grades and that type of thing but what I did is I've just worked really really hard okay. and um I was really lucky that I made some good friendships quickly and those friendships were with people that were both really intelligent and really generous. And what that enabled me to do was to accelerate my learning and I could almost feel my brain opening up as we, as we progressed. Mm. So I took two years to do that part-time and by the end of it I was getting good grades because unfortunately in psychology that it's so competitive and there's so many people that are interested in doing it that you really have to, to get pre achieve pretty high marks mm -hmm. in order to be able to keep going mm. can, I, can i ask because i imagine in that moment when you first start studying and, and you're not killing it and because obviously your character traits mean that you often experience success in life um what how was it hard you know and, and, and like and it sounds like you went back to your character traits to get through it but um ego wise what was that moment like oh, yeah I did definitely have moments where I was very self-critical um but I think what I've learned to do with that sort of thing is to use it I can 
I'll temporarily allow myself to have those thoughts like, oh, see, you suck. Mm. But then I'll be like, but what are you going to do about it? Mm. What do you, how can you, who, who do you know that could maybe can give you a hand with how to understand this? Mm. Um, and because I really did believe that I really believed in myself at, to be able to do this as a, as a job. Um, and I just knew that I just needed to tick those boxes and be good enough because then by the time it gets to kind of getting into the post-grad courses, marks are important, experience is important, and your personality and your the way that you conduct yourself is also considered important. Mm-hmm. And I, I knew I'd smash that part. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> because I'm absolutely so- suitable. I am the right person for that job. Mm. But it's interesting, so isn't it? But I like, I like what you're saying because, you know, like, unfortunately, for a lot of people, when they have that kind of, they hit the wall or, or they're doubtful or full of insecurity, and we all experience it. But for a lot of people, it's a debilitating moment. And ultimately, what you're saying is that mm. even when you experience it, you you knew just move towards action. You know, I, I, I if I can move towards action, there'll be progress, and that gives me the best chance of success. Not bugger this and you know quit or or lack you know pull back on effort, which means there's less chance of success. No, absolutely not. I was working a full-time job. I was teaching around about five or six group fitness classes a week, working as a trainer and presenter for Les Mills. And so what it meant there was that there were lots of late nights. And I just stayed up until it was done. And I didn't complain because it was such a great opportunity and I needed to work to support myself while I was doing it. And I completely accept that. We, I, I think sometimes we have to remind ourselves that even though it is hard, um, imagine how many people around the world just couldn't even have this opportunity. Yeah. So we can't waste it. Yeah, yeah, it's a good attitude. Okay, so let's let's dig a little bit deep into um, what we were talking about when we were in Melbourne. So you and I were just kind of presenting at a workshop with a big, at a big Les Mills thing, uh, and you kind of just tell me about some of the stuff you're doing with um, eating disorders and some of the group work you did. And so maybe just tell us where that starts from and kind of where, you know, just kind of talk about it because I was fascinated by it. Mm, sure. So when I was in my first year of my PhD, I did spend a – large proportion of that year trying to work out what can I actually research and for me I wanted it to be something that was as meaningful as it could be within the constraints of a short um, project because it's a pretty short period of time and there's lots of other things that you're doing and so lots of reading lots of discussions with my supervisors and what we landed on was that Eating disorders are, are a pretty big problem for a lot of people and even disordered eating. So um, I might just go back one step. There's a, there's a couple of classification systems that we use in, t- in medical or sort of psychological professions and they classify different mental disorders like we would classify diabetes, for example. But um, we also understand that, that most things occur along a continuum. And so we might slide up and down. Even if we think about our own experiences of mood, we might ha- we have 
days where we feel on top of the world and then we have other days where we don't and that's really normal so you could imagine you're sort of sliding up and down that continuum a little bit and when we think of someone being maybe unwell it would be where you've kind of got to a point where it's actually really impacting on that person's life and if we think about that in terms of eating disorders there's a set criteria that someone might meet for one of the known eating disorders or the subclinical eating disorders but then within that there's other people that don't meet any of it where it could actually impact on their life so we would call that disordered eating so i'm really talking about both of those okay um and the problem is that with eating disorders the current treatments only elicit around about a 50 percent recovery rate oh wow so that means that out of the very small proportion of people who access treatment and the, the the average duration of illness prior to even engaging in treatment is five years. Wow. That person's been suffering for five years before something happens where they then engage in, in treatment. Can I, can I say, um, sorry, can I just ask? Do you, yeah? Just, mm-hmm. Do you know how much, like, and this might be hard to answer, but as a percentage of society, mm-hmm. how many people have eating disorders? Oh, yeah, that's it's really tough? hard. Okay. Yep. Yeah, yep. I don't know. Probably lots because it's so underreported and it would be really underreported in men as well. Yeah, of course. Yeah. Yeah. Wouldn't it? Okay. Sorry, but keep yeah. going. I was just kind of curious. Heaps. Yeah. Maybe 1%, but maybe I'd say a lot more than that. Yeah. And, and I, I've worked with people that describe their, what they're, what they're going through. And I'm like, well, that that's, you're meeting the criteria for an eating disorder. Am I? Um, oh, that's just how I've always been. Yes, if we can do something about this, <laughs> this is okay. Yeah. This is how, is this what you're experiencing? Yep. Okay, we know what this is. Okay. So um, even though I'm saying that people occur along a continuum, the good thing about having names for things is that then there's a shared understanding. So if, if I speak to a GP or a psychiatrist and we've got this label, I guess it is, then there's acknowledgement that we know what each other are talking about. Yeah. Um, yeah. So that's where it's quite helpful. So, and, so taking you back, so 50% of the people who, who get treatment, which is mm-hmm. pretty minor anyway, don't actually get an outcome. No. no. Wow. Yeah. So some, what will often happen is that say if it's, if it's severe enough that someone enters hospital or um, inpatient treatment at the end of it, that they may have say gained enough weight to be medically stabilized and they're not engaging in a particular number of behaviors and and that kind of thing but what the qualitative research tells us is that although that might be the case for the people that relapse often they feel as though there's underlying things that are happening for them that haven't been addressed and so what what that brought us to was that for a significant portion of people with eating disorders they have previously experienced trauma and then also trauma-related symptoms. Um, And that could be as bad as having post-traumatic stress disorder, which is PTSD. And again, there's lots and lots of people who terrible things happen to, and they may um, be able to process that within a a period of time and and actually recover. And so they don't get PTSD, Mm. but then for some people they do. So Mm. that, and that, that can, um, mean that they have 
symptoms like re-experiencing what had happened, um, avoiding certain things that might remind them of that incident or incidents, and that there's this overwhelming sense of threat. So if we take those two things together, um, we know that we need to improve eating disorder treatments. And something that's been happening in the medical world is, is much more personalised medicine. So that means that medicine is created for that person, for their genes. And that's about as far as my knowledge goes. I okay. don't want to yeah. yeah. <laughs> go into it too, too much. But that's, that's the gist of it. And so we thought, well, we know there's this large subset of people who have this comorbidity. And then there's some shared psychological factors that probably are difficult for for both of these disorders and maybe worse when they occur together, which are things like having trouble with regulating emotions, understanding emotions. Emotions can feel really threatening and overwhelming. Um, they uh, have experienced high levels of shame. And what that can mean is that that shame can then elevate their own sense of self so they can have quite a negative self-concept and you can imagine that if those things are going on and someone's giving them this logical treatment which is like okay when this feeling happens try and resist it but underneath that you've got this sense of self where you're like well this is probably my fault and i deserve it mm. well then it's really hard to get a lot of traction yeah Shall I keep going? No, keep going. I love it. Keep going, yeah. The punchline? Yeah. yeah. So then what, what we, what we um, came across was a treatment modality which was created by Professor Paul Gilbert in the UK, and it's a compassion-based intervention. So it's called compassion-focused therapy, and it's basically a skills training which is um, known as compassionate mind training. And what it does is that it, it teaches a series of activities and exercises to el elicit different parts of ourselves, like our parasympathetic nervous system by regulating and slowing down our breath, um, changing the expression on our face and the vocal tone that we talk to ourselves with, because that can also trigger off physiological responses in our bodies um, and, and help us to respond in a more compassionate way. And compassion involves action and engagement. So being able to engage with things that are difficult in life and then take the necessary steps to be able to alleviate that challenge or that, those difficulties and move through. It's not about just being like really fluffy and nice. It's like, no, life is really hard. Mm. And sometimes we've got to find a way to move through that struggle in a more helpful way that doesn't harm us and doesn't harm others. And so, so I, I seem to recall you said you also do it in like a group environment, the, the training kind of system. So talk about that. Yeah. So what we did was um, I went off and, and did the training in Sydney and then I did some more training up in Germany with Paul. And what we, what we delivered is um, some group sessions for people that, that identify as having both trauma and uh, and sort of PTSD symptoms as well as an, an eating disorder. And we designed a 10-week program, two hours per week, 
where we taught the psychoeducation around how our brains are quite tricky and we can get stuck in these loops, then developing the compassionate part of ourselves, which is compassion to ourselves towards others and then being able to accept it from others, which is often the hardest one. Oh, really? And then we unpack. Yeah, oh, yeah, yeah. Can you give an example? You Can you give an example of that? Yeah. So imagine if you, if really deep down you didn't feel like you deserved it and someone was really compassionate towards you, imagine how hard that would feel. Mm, yep. It almost feels disgusting. Yeah. And, yeah. Yeah. So you reject so it that's anyway. A, it's a really, really normal. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Such a normal and response. It, and it's quite a common response in people in these situations. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Mm. But often what we can, and and it can be, it doesn't have to be, but it could be that their caregivers early in life didn't react to them in that way. And that can, that can be quite a challenge in terms of things like our attachment system and being able to feel safe and secure. Mm. But, we can always improve it. We can always start to generate those feelings and sensations for ourselves, even if it's not something that was given to us. So, you, so yeah. kind of, it's training it as a conscious process so that eventually mm. it becomes something that is more installed in you as a person. Yeah, exactly. Okay. Exactly. And I, I've worked with some people that are highly skeptical and fair enough. Because how could you not be? It's mm. it, it's a really different way of, of working on these these difficulties. Um, but quite often there'll be something or someone in their life where they know exactly what it is. It could be towards your dog or towards your child or it could have been that there was a neighbour that lived next door to you when you were growing up or a grandparent or a teacher even that has shown you this. And so innately we know what it is. It's just that sometimes maybe it's gone a little bit offline and we need to tap back into it and work on it and strengthen it like a muscle. Mm. Yeah. And, and, and I've, I've found... Oh, sorry, you go. Mm-hmm. You go. There you go. Yeah, well, I've found that often people will participate in the groups and then all of a sudden they'll, they'll get there on one of the weeks, like week five or week six, and all of a sudden this compassionate part of them has come online. Oh, wow. So they might have endured something, I don't know, like road rage or someone at the supermarket cutting them off or doing something. And whereas usually that would trigger a, a whole lot of rage in, in them, they found that they were able to tap into that more compassionate response. Okay. Wow. Yeah. And what kind of techniques are you teaching them? You know, like obviously it's about compassion, but give us an example of a technique that you would teach them, obviously, because you're kind of saying there's kind of a double tier approach. A, we need to educate them on the, what's happening and the background of it all. And then obviously there's probably mm-hmm. teaching them the awareness of when it's happening. I imagine it's a big part of it. So teaching them, is it, would that be right? Yeah, definitely. So mindfulness is one of the things that comes in fairly early on. And that can be a real struggle for people, particularly who have experienced trauma, because sitting with their body and their breath and really focusing internally can be something that is not comfortable. So there's other ways that we can bring maybe a bit of more of an external focus. Like a simple one would be that they can maybe do some colouring in or 
hold on to some squishy balls and imagine that their breath is flowing out to those squishy balls as opposed mm. to into their bodies. Um, but then what that reminds us is that we all have that capacity of being able to shift where our attention goes. That's really what mindfulness is, isn't it? It's mm. about shifting mm. our attention. Yeah. And then in, in compassion-focused therapy, and you can easily Google this and you can actually do the whole exercise with Paul Gilbert online um, is so, something called soothing rhythm breathing. And within that, we set the posture so that when we're sitting upright, it, it triggers much different a much different feel in our body. As so it's kind of it's determining your emotional forced. state. It's, it's basically creating an emotional state. It does. State. Okay, 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 okay. Yeah. 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 So we do that and then we um, we – slow down our breath and then like i said before we almost bring like a a little bit of a smile to our face and then as well as that we will almost invite ourselves into that practice with our own our own voice in our own head um and i'm not going to give you an example (laughs) because it's embarrassing <laughs> and that's I save that only for the people in the groups. <laughs> yeah, fair enough. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So we do that and then we start to practice that each week. So okay. there's a yeah, there's a combination of different things that happens. Um and and it's based in, in all the different types of research that Paul's used. Um and then even the cueing, so there's some cueing that we use within that, and that's mind slowing down and body slowing down, which is not something we do all that often. Mm, we don't mm. slow down. Yeah. yeah. Um, and it's hard, especially people like us. We're pretty go, 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 right? Yeah, yeah, for sure. Mm. Yeah. And then from there, we we start to build what that compassionate image is as well as having a, a safe place that we can go to in our mind. So there's a lot of use of imagination. Mm, sounds like it, yeah. And I don't know. Yeah, I don't know if that's something that you've used in fitness, but I use a lot of visualisation in group fitness. Mm, same, yeah, no so, doubt, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So it's that same thing. Like the power of our mind is is quite unbelievable and sometimes we can imagine something before and and then make it real yeah so we, if we imagine imagine it it's not quite so hard to tolerate no i'm a big believer in it. i'm a big believer in even like it's the way i live my day is I, I see my day before i live it and see the moments that i have to confront which are challenging and and yeah. try to win the moment before i experience the moment you know like that's kind of what you're doing really with visualization or any technique like that it's kind of kind of foreseeing the future and seeing the bits that are going to be a struggle and and the thing is, you can often see them. You know what I mean? Like, especially if you are living a kind of regular day, mm. you can often see the bits that are going to be confronting for you. And so it is that kind of, okay, well, how do I go into that bit with the best chance of success is kind of, you know, and um, obviously I'm just doing it more in a practical sense of being a higher self, but you, you're obviously using it with these people in moments where you could be vulnerable, how you're going to deal with it in a way that's actually more compassionate, which will help you moving forward. Yeah. Definitely. Mm. And because then in the middle of the, I think, week six and seven, we really start to work on our emotions. Um, so we, we think about, we might think of a, of a difficult situation and then we work through some of the base emotions that, that most of us experience, which are anger, anxiety, sadness. 
And then we move into how would our compassionate self respond to this? So we'll think about, we'll, we'll, um, and we share this as a group. You were asking before about, well, why do you do it as a group? There's a couple of reasons. Um, Number one, it's less, less cost. But actually, I'd say that the main benefit is that sitting in a room with people that get you and you don't have to explain yourself to is really nice. Mm. And there's this shared understanding, hey, we've all been through some stuff. And not, we, don't, we don't ever um, talk about that. We don't say, okay, tell us your life story in front yeah. of everyone. It's a skills-based thing. Um, yeah, so, so, but once we've built that trust and rapport between the group members, they're able to support one another and, um, and help to share their own experiences in a way that's appropriate and safe. And this, the, the, when we talk about the emotions, it's really where everyone realises that these things that I've been experiencing and feeling and struggling with, actually everyone else is too. Mm. So how does it how does it show up for us? How does it feel in our body? Where do we feel it? What does that feel like? What do we notice in our mind? What does that angry part of us want to do to the other person, to the situation? What does it want want for us? What's it trying to protect us from? Mm. And the stance is, and I, I I think this is just such a great thing to think about is that all of these emotions are actually really helpful because they're telling us something about the situation mm. and then at the end of that we think about okay well when we get really angry and it feels really out of control what are some of the ways that we know that we can start to tone that down and regulate the way that we're feeling and what that allows people to do is to recognize that emotion better. So when it comes out, it can go, you can, instead of feeling just totally overwhelmed, totally shut down, out of control, whatever it might be, ah, oh, that's anger. It's, it's come here and it's trying to help me to navigate this situation. And okay, that, thank you for being here, yeah. anger. That's awesome that is really great. It's a bit overwhelming right now. And I know that if I just slow myself down and I go somewhere where I feel safe or I breathe and I, or I label it, whatever it might be, there's lots of different ways that people may cope with that. Is it actually, it becomes not so scary Mm. and it's not an instant thing, but it is definitely something that I've found everybody is able to connect with. Well, I think the other thing about that group dynamic as well is one thing I find, I love working with groups as well, um, and exercise obviously, but even when you're trying to do kind of self-development stuff and because there's also process and listening to other people, you know, and as you're kind of saying, yes. that, you know, like you're processing yourself, even if someone's talking about their experience, you are going through your own processing in that as well. And if you are creating a quite a safe environment where people can freely express, then you are getting to that deeper level, which helps people to process to a deeper level as well, isn't there? Yeah, I'm really glad you said that because that is actually one of the most important parts of compassion-focused therapy. Um, each we with a, a, a structure to the session, but at any point along the way, if the group needs longer or needs to some more time, in, in one of the portions of that 
session, well, then we take it. Mm. And for that exact reason, and I've found we've run seven groups and each one of them is completely different. Depends on the people in the group, what's happening for them. Um, yeah, so that, that processing and once that trust has been built and people are able to share their ideas and thoughts and support with one another, then that's where the real magic happens. And it's actually not from us as facilitators. It's definitely the people in the group who yeah. create that. So, 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 so how long is it, did you say it's an eight-week program? Ten. Okay. So, they, so they, so they work through this ten-week process. They're, they're kind of flexing the muscle of developing this kind of, kind of um, process of working through this in a healthier way, and and learning the trigger moments earlier, mm -hmm. how to deal with the trigger moments. So, for that reason, they then don't go to the place of the bad eating habits or the bad eating behaviors, or if you know what I mean. Yeah. So, what what we're really trying to target um, in the group? Well, number one build greater a greater sense of compassion so that when difficult things happen there's a more adaptive way of coping that's helpful to them um, but then alongside that greater compassion is associated with less shame and self-criticism oh, okay and okay. though yeah so that's actually what we're really targeting within this treatment modality we don't we'll occasionally occasionally I'll, i might say hey this is something that's come up that i've heard people that that have eating disorders and, and ptsd talk about how does that resonate with you and then the discussion might go on from there but other than that we're not saying you need to eat at this time and you need to eat this and that and stop doing this and thinking that it's actually what we're really hoping for is that through this process of developing a, a greater sense of compassion, which of course, 10 weeks is just the beginning, mm, but yeah, we do course. find that, that, yeah, that people really do start to develop it, that they, that they will, will understand deeply that whatever it is that's happened, it's absolutely not their fault, but it is their responsibility to keep working on it. And that's of course, if you if you have the capacity to be able to do that and mm. and that yeah so we're not even really we we work alongside their treating teams which may be their gp psychiatrist psychologist and they'd still be receiving individual support for the for whatever it is that they're working on at that time whether it's the trauma or eating disorder or both um and then we're trying to help develop these skills that will that will help to successfully set them up long term mm. so that there's some patterns that have changed and that that they're able to i don't know um just manage life not be so bogged down yeah, yeah. with with these things that are going on and uh, a lot of the people that we're that we're working with are very high functioning people. You, yeah, if you yeah, yeah, yeah. looked at them, you wouldn't be like, "Oh, you've got you've got all this really hard stuff going on." You would not know that. Yeah, no, no it wasn't the case, isn't it? So, mm. um, I, I don't yeah. know if you guys have been doing it long enough to know. You know, if, if 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 we look at the model that you talked about earlier, where not many people actually get treatment, and of those, only fifty percent are you know long term success. Have you guys been doing this long enough to see if it's a better way forward? Um, 
the way the way that I'd probably comment on that is that it's it can be a piece of the puzzle for some people that if it comes at the right time can be really helpful. Okay, nice. Yeah, it's not. I wouldn't say, "Hey, we all just need to do this from now on because this yeah. is the perfect fix." It's kind of like if it comes at the right time where that person is ready and committed and feels motivated enough to to embed this within their life and they've had enough support and have ongoing support around their eating disorder or their trauma symptoms, then it can be really helpful. Yeah, nice. That's really good. About it. Yeah. I, I do have a couple of questions which are kind of on topic but different topic. Um, you know, Eating disorders seem to be more prevalent now, and maybe it's social media. I, I, I can't really put my finger on it. I don't know the answers, but it definitely seems to be more mm. of a, a problem. Um, first of all, for those who are around the people, so let's say you've got a daughter, mm. or you've you know, or you've got you know someone in your life who you you know is having problems. What's the best way to address it? Because it's such a like I know as a fitness professional, I know there's people in my world who have eating disorders. I never mm. really bring it up. Like if they talk to me, like I've had some no. people who trust me a lot um, and they may bring stuff up with me and that's cool and I'll, and I'll, I'll try to support them and guide them to, towards the right people at least. Um, but, you know, is, is it my role to say something? You know, like it's such a delicate thing. Yeah, and and as, a, as a fitness instructor, like let's say I'm a fitness instructor at the gym, it's, it's probably not really my role. It's a tough one. But, but for the people in the world who do have people around them who – they know that we had what is like and i know there's no, not a perfect answer for this but what would be your advice so the first thing to know is that eating disorders are caused by a number of things so we we know that there's the biological basis which means that you might have some genes that make you a little more prone to developing difficulties in this area it doesn't mean you will um, but you might. And so obviously that's not your fault. No. Um, and then you might have some psychological um, factors like being a perfectionist or being like really driven. Those those types of things might, might mean that you're a little bit more susceptible because when you do something, you do it really well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you're really committed. Yeah, it's like I'm the yeah. most disciplined and eating, not eating is a disciplined thing. So it's a, it's kind of reinforcing a character trait. Yeah, it is. Yeah. 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 Um, there might be something around um, sort of aspects of your social environment, whether it's at school or a particular sport. I know there's a lot of pressure on people like runners mm. to look a particular way that's actually not necessarily got anything to do with how well they can run mm -hmm. um fortunately those those um pro those problematic um thoughts are starting to shift well, no, and, and i'm sure you saw it in dance like in dance i imagine there was a bit of that back in the day yeah yeah absolutely um and again like there's there's a sort of more athletic aesthetic that is becoming more popular mm. which is a really positive shift so um but i think that it's still it's still, still a pretty challenging mm. area with dance i think i do find that with dancers they may 
they may um, be fairly restrictive when they're dancing in terms of their food and stuff, but not that many people would typically sort of go on for it to be a lifelong thing or okay. and when they stop or kind of um, be able to, to sort of move through it. Yeah. But it can be, yeah, I mean, I've heard some, some pretty harsh horror stories. Um, but I've recently worked actually with the Australian Ballet School and found that they are, yeah, I mean, the director there and is just amazing and really embraces individuality with the dancers, which I think is, it's just a massive shift forwards from what my perception of it was 20 years ago when I was still dancing. Mm -hmm. So I think it is absolutely moving in the right direction. So, yeah, knowing that it's a it's a number of things that, can lead to someone having these difficulties. Um, so find some online resources. I'm in Victoria in Australia and there's a wonderful organisation here called Eating Disorders Victoria. And they've got some great info on their websites. I'm sure there's an equivalent in New Zealand or wherever it is that, that people are tuning in from. Um, but some of the things that I always think of is to try and educate yourself and think about the fact that that person is probably experiencing things like a really high level of anxiety mm. around this. Mm. Well, it's funny Shame. you say that because when I was younger, my I would stutter if I was insecure. Um, and when, when I was a druggie, it actually became a big problem. Like I just stutter all the time. And then when I mm. gave up drugs, it was never a problem. And then I actually had a really bad experience with Les Mills. I went to America for like three or four months and it was a really horrible experience. Like everything about it sucked. And I, and I remember I started oh. stuttering again. It was really fascinating. And I remember I just hope nobody noticed it. You know, like all I cared about was, and I remember when someone once said to me, if you stutter a lot, don't you? And when someone said it, it just hurt. Like it was just like, not knife through the heart kind of stuff. Yeah. And it was really fascinating because oh. yeah, I was working, I was struggling so much within it myself with it anyway, but you're kind oh. of just hoping no one notices. And then once someone else acknowledged it, it was even worse. You know, it was like, it was, yeah, it was oh, really man. tough. Yeah. It was interesting. Yeah. 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 And you, and I think there's a lot of myths around eating disorders. Um, I, when I've worked with families, it's, it's always, it breaks my heart when I, see parents that are that are blaming themselves mm. and just even having that conversation to let them know hey this is just there's a whole lot of things that are at play here and it's mm. it is no one's fault and they mm. it really sucks and it's really hard yeah. and i'm so sorry that you're going through this but let's let's just do what we can yeah. to help you and your family and this young person who's struggling so much um, so shame, embarrassment, guilt. Um, a lot of people with eating disorders may not even recognise or may be kind of in denial that it's a problem. Mm. So knowing that too. Yeah. Some of the recommendations that we give to people are, are using I statements. So I really care about you and I'm really worried because okay. I've noticed this and this. And just letting them know that that you're a safe person that they can talk to, but also not feeling like you've got to solve it yourself because you don't. Mm. Um, even though I do this for a job, it, if I noticed that a friend of mine was struggling, then I would be pointing them in the direction of help for them and I'd support them as a friend, mm. not as anything else. 
and then um, understand trying to understand how they feel and allowing them the time and just strongly encouraging them to seek help and that you you can support them along the way in a way that is appropriate and okay that feels okay for you yeah. depending on what your relationship is with that person yeah so but be supportive the, 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 supportive towards the right kind of help yeah yeah, yeah. and I, I i always think um having a great gp is absolutely paramount to recovery because they are in that that privileged position where they they can um they're such great communicators and they also understand sort of the psychological and the medical side mm. and that can be really important mm. um and then the other oh i forgot to mention one of the main reasons why i that i i love about working in eating, eating disorders is that you can absolutely recover yeah nice yeah yeah okay. so it's like this could be a terrible terrible problem and by no means is it easy and lots of people um don't necessarily want to work in this area but i do and because i firmly believe that you can definitely overcome it yeah it's which it's is really important isn't it? because that, that sense of hope's really important isn't it you know like um hmm. you know it's tough when you, when there are areas where you can't actually you know like you just have to accept that this is going to suck um whereas if there is an area like you're saying that if with with work and guidance and you know like a progression forward you can each get to a better place yeah and that's that's how we feel about kind of any kind of psychological difficulty that someone's enduring i think we hear a lot about what's what's a problem and maybe not so much about that the focus on recovery mm. Mm. yeah that's right <laughs> we can hear the dog in the background we can hardly actually hear it so it's all good <laughs> Okay, good. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> she must have heard a leaf move. Oh, she's back in bed. <laughs> back in bed. Um, just just yeah. anything else you want to say as we wrap things up here? Anything else you kind of want to comment on or anything else you want to share? Um, well, uh, maybe around in, – in, and I, I don't think this is it. I think I find that – and I might be wrong – but I do find that the gyms in New Zealand and probably encourage a little bit more body diversity, whereas I don't see much of it in in the classes where I teach. Maybe it's just where I'm teaching. Mm. But it would be I I think that it would be really great, and maybe you see this more in your um in your business that you run with Joe, mm. is it would be really great if we could find a way of of just inviting more inclusivity into our um into fitness so that more people feel welcome mm. um and included because mm. it doesn't matter it doesn't matter where you're starting from um and and then also thinking about the fact that we've actually all got really different goals mm. yeah. and it doesn't even ha it doesn't have to be about how you look yeah my goals not. are not about how i look well, it's really um, interesting because I speak I, to a lot of people who aren't exercisers and struggle with exercise, and the, the image really never comes up as their first answer. You know, like it, it's uh, more about yeah. being able to live a life they want to live. You know, to, you know, to have experiences. You yes. know, like it's, you know, it's it's more about having energy. You know, they sure some of them want to lose some weight, but it's pretty often mm. like the fourth or fifth answer. 
Yeah, because how confident and awesome and how much do you bounce out of bed in the morning when you're feeling strong and healthy yeah. and yeah. you're just in that flow. Yeah. Um, and I think that I, I really want that for other people and, and it, theirs might not look the same as mine, but I just know how much better and, and probably from going through the pandemic where we were kind of shut indoors for a long time and um, and and didn't have that, even just the incidental exercise in mm. Melbourne, we're only allowed outside for an hour a day. And you guys were locked down forever, weren't you? Yeah. Was, <laughs> yeah. 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 I was lucky because I was roaming around the hospital wards and actually getting to talk to people. Um, that was, that was massive, a massive privilege, but I did also see the toll that it took on people that, happen to land themselves in hospital for one reason or another and mm. then not be able to have their family in there. Yeah. That was terrible. Yeah. Horrific. Yeah. So yeah. I don't know. I just, it would be fabulous if, if we could just do everything that we can to, to be helpful to the people around us. Mind you, how much information is there out there bombarding people? Mm. Yeah. No wonder yeah. no one knows what to do. Yeah, it's very it's probably like it? the whole mental health thing. Yeah. Trust your own inner wisdom. You know, you know yeah. what feels good for you. Yeah. I've worked with people who, who uh, have told me they want to become more fit. So then, then they'll set themselves a goal around running and week after week, they're like, oh, I'm like, oh, how did you go with your run? Oh, I didn't go. Oh, okay. And then after all, I'm like, do you like running? <laughs> <laughs> and then they'll like, they'll go, no, I hate it. I'm like, why? We, why do we have a goal about running then? <laughs> well, so this is what I talk about in my book because the second chapter is find a movement you love. Because you find a movement you love, yes. You know, it's you know, like that's what it's, it's all about. You know, it's like really uh, we've got to get a bit of habit in place. But then we, once we find the movement, it's so much easier. You know, and, and the good thing about this is a million yeah. different movements. You know, you know, you, who knows mm-hmm. what you're like unless you try some stuff. You know, and, and so yeah, it's it's yeah. Really interesting. Hey, where do people follow you? If you do, you care about all that kind of stuff. Like, if if you want people to follow you, where do they go? Oh. <laughs> well, you can follow me on Instagram. It's Inga Gannett. Good luck spelling it. <laughs> <laughs> well, it'll be in the title. Of I'll put a link to it in the show notes. <laughs> yep, yep, yep. And I do have my own website, which is ingagannett.com. Okay. Um, and then I would recommend Compassion. Oh compassionatemind.co.uk, which is uh, Paul Gilbert's website. There's lots of info on there um, if anyone's interested in learning a little bit more about compassion-focused therapy or the philosophies behind it, then go for gold. Compassionatemind.co.uk. I'll put that in the show notes as well. Hey, thank you so much for your time today. It's been really insightful, some really good knowledge here. And So as you can see, there's pretty pretty interesting stuff in there, isn't it? And, and obviously, this is a really important area um, for many people in our society. And even as I was saying earlier, it may not be something you experience in your own life, but I think it's something that a lot of us are touched by, at least by people around us in our life. So um, yeah, if you, if you, hopefully, I'll put links to Inga's work and that other podcast or the other website that she was talking about in the show notes for today's show. Um, I'm just going to wrap things up here. So first of all, let's say a massive thank you to our patrons. Our patrons are the people who support the show 
each week. Um, if you can donate a bit of your hard-earned money our way, it really makes a difference, to be honest, because you know, this is a labour of love. We don't make a huge amount of money from it, but the patrons, it's really cool to see you guys supporting us. And here are a few of our patrons. John, I'm going to knock you out, Reardon. We've got Ryan, Ruthless Smith. We've got Gavin, the Big Brew Duffy. Again, www.iamtalk.me to become a patron. Also, you can go there to get your uh, show emailed to you. Just go to the bottom of the front page. For coaching, coachjohnnewson.com. If you enjoyed my podcast, the one that I put on here today, and you like that kind of content, you can check out my podcast at bevanjamesisles.com or my new book, I Will Make You Passionate About Exercise. Go to passionateaboutexercise.com. And if you want to email us with any content, go to iamtalkpodcast at gmail.com. Other than that, that's today's show pretty much done and dusted. We've got an hour 40 out. We made it work. Uh, we'll be back in the studios with Jonbo next week. So you guys have a wonderful week. As always, what is it? I'm Russ. I'm Endone. Train hard. Train smart. Kia kaha.